We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with. to supporting the ADOS community through podcasts, videos, and courses that will elevate our civic awareness. Together, we discuss politics and government, public policy, political activism, and much more, all in a way that's easy to understand and helps you learn. Black Civics is brought to you by Kimberly Renee Davis, Tony Blunt, and Chris Lodgson. So the first question is a really basic question. And that is just for our audience, for our listeners, for the viewers, can you define reparations for us? What do you mean when you say the word reparations? I mean a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure uh, in response to a grievous injustice. Right on. All right, Um, I'd like to ask you, uh, Dr. Darity, um, what are some goals that a reparations program should seek to actually accomplish? So the goals have to be embodied in the redress portion of the program. Uh, and they have to uh, address in some way uh, some type of resolution uh, and, and compensation to the community that was subjected to victimization. Uh, some type of compensation for uh, for the harms and damages that they've incurred. Um, and uh, the compensation should be, in principle, sufficient to restore that community to a condition that they otherwise would have achieved uh, in the absence of the injustice. Uh, but that may be impossible to the extent that there are some members of that community who have probably been killed as a consequence of the injustice. And so, um, so the compensatory action has to address the kinds of inequalities that exist in the present moment as a consequence of the injustice. Uh, so if we're thinking about reparations for black Americans, uh, in the work that I've been doing with Kirsten Mullen, we've tended to emphasize uh, the racial wealth gap in the United States as an index of the cumulative effects of an array of atrocities that have been inflicted upon uh, black descendants of American slavery. Um, And so in that context, we view one of the priorities of a reparations program, that is a reparations program for that community uh, as, uh, as, as being designed to eliminate the racial wealth gap in the United States. Well, can you talk to us about some of the key factors to be considered in a reparations program, like such as how 
how much would it cost and who should receive it and how should it be implemented? Well, I mean, it depends on the grievous injustice. I mean, if we're concerned about grievous injustices that are related to the nation's racial history, then the eligible community has to be uh, black descendants, black American descendants of, of US slavery. And I think that that should be established based upon two, two conditions. The first condition is that an individual would have to show that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States of America. And then the second condition is that for at least 10 years before the onset of or the enactment of a reparations program or the enactment of a study commission for reparations, that the individual uh, must have self-identified as Black, Negro, or, or African American. So the, the two conditions essentially mean that the folks who should receive reparations in this context are uh, folks who are uh, the descendants of those who were formerly enslaved in the United States and who lived their lives as Black people today. Mm, got it. Um, Dr. Dowdy, actually, <clears throat> Uh, I want, I want to go off script a little bit here and just circle a little bit back to the point that you made about the connection between uh, the institution of slavery and the racial or lineage wealth gap. Can you talk a little bit more about how, what, what exactly is the connection and even the mechanism for, um, for, for, for the connection between slavery, the institution, and today's very deep racial wealth gulf gap, however you want to characterize it. So in that context, let me return to the part of Kimberly's question that I didn't answer. That <laughs> was, was the portion about the cost. And I think that the cost of the program must be dictated at, at minimum by the requirements of what it will take to eliminate the racial wealth gap in the United States. And so that would be in the vicinity of 10 to $12 trillion. Um, so, so now let me turn, Chris, to your question, which is about, um, you know, what caused the racial wealth gap in some sense? What's the connection between slavery and the racial wealth gap? So, uh, you know, Julian Castro made a very interesting observation early in the campaign where he said, uh, you know, there, the, the, it makes complete sense to, to provide some sort of compensation or restitution to people who were somebody else's property and who were denied the opportunity to acquire their own. Uh, so you could argue that the origins of the racial wealth gap reside in the period of enslavement itself. But I would go a step further because in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was serious consideration of the prospect of giving the formerly enslaved uh, significant land grants that would have formed the basis for them having an initial stake, financial stake in the in the nation's uh, in the nation's economic system, uh, and that promise was never fulfilled. And so I think that that's where the racial wealth gap originates is in the uh, is in the in the, the denial of the promise of the forty acre land grants. Um, and then there's a, a sequence of events that follow that, but. I'm not certain that I would say that it was slavery in and of itself that led to the racial wealth gap. 
as it was a chain of events that took place after slavery ended. Uh, but that chain of events was a consequence of the historical presence of slavery in the United States. Right, the, the legacy of slavery it, it, itself. And, and in your, <clears throat> uh, I, I want to move on to the next question, but in your testimony uh, this year to the um, House Judiciary Subcommittee um, on the question of H.R. 40, you actually did speak specifically about three distinct periods um, right. in which um, this is this this conversation needs to, needs to be happening, and that is the period um, of physical enslavement, the period of you know uh, re-enslavement or Jim Crow, uh, and then the period uh, post uh, civil rights, uh, 1950s, 1960s to today. So those those are the three distinct periods um, for which um, we are talking about a reparations program. Um, right. To, to follow up also in that testimony. Uh, and and, and yeah. let, me, let me add that there's a, a, there's a single community of people who were subjected to all three phases of these atrocities. And that's the community that should be designated for, uh, for, for what we might refer to as pure reparations or black reparations. Right on. Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, we're we're going to talk about um, pure reparations uh, in a few minutes because uh, I have a I have a question about that for sure. Um, but just to follow up um, in that testimony this year to the Congress on Juneteenth, June nineteenth of this year, um, for the you know HR forty hearings, um, you talked about several principles that any reparations program um, should adhere to. I think you've mentioned at least a couple of those so far, um, but can right. you talk, talk a little bit more about, you know, what, what, are, what are maybe some of the other principles that any reparations program you think should adhere to? Well, I think that the principles that I outlined in that testimony included, as you said, a couple of things that we've talked about, which is uh, what's, what's the criteria that should determine who's eligible for receipt of reparations. Uh, the other is uh, what what are the standards that should be used for the purposes of trying to calculate what the bill is. Uh, and, and there I've been emphasizing closing or eliminating the racial wealth gap. Um, but I think that uh, another set of principles that should animate what happens with the reparations program should concern the question of the nation's historical memory. Um, and that you know, the, the reason I think one of the central reasons we have so much resistance to the notion that these atrocities, these atrocities that were uniquely inflicted on, on, on black folks in the United States, that uh, so much resistance to the notion that these atrocities require compensation or restitution is because of the way in which we have had uh, a distorted narrative foisted on us uh, about the Civil War, about the Reconstruction Era, and about this notion, this this really uh, this really horrendous notion, that in some sense Black people are responsible for the condition that they find themselves in today, uh, through our own misbehavior or dysfunctional behavior, and I th I think that that set of ideas actually really are uh, a composite set of ideas that emerge out of neo-Confederate thinking. 
uh, and I think it's been highly influential. And I think some of that influence has percolated or permeated the black community as well. I think there's a significant number of black folks who subscribe to this notion that black folks are in the position we are because of our pathological, uh, some of the pathological behaviors that we engage in. So, so I think that, uh, that providing a more accurate historical record that can be transmitted to multiple generations of Americans over say the next century or so is critical in altering the way in which people think about these issues because the way in which they think about these issues is frequently a consequence of false information. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, To follow up, you just mentioned uh, a term or phrase which I'm hearing more of now, and that's pure reparations. Uh, I've heard you talk in the past about uh, a portfolio of rep- reparations, um, you know, programs or you know, initiatives. Um, can you talk a little bit about what um, are what does pure rep- reparations mean? Is there such a thing? If so, what is that? And then also, um, very much relatedly, can you talk about what uh, a, a good reparations program would look like um, to to you? So. Uh... So the, the use of the term pure reparations is, is one that some of us have appropriated from Representative Clyburn in South Carolina. Uh, okay. He's actually, he's actually an opponent right. of reparations. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what what he says he's opposed to is what he calls pure reparations. And I think that, uh, that the particular dimension of that that he, he objects to is this notion that a reparations fund must include um, as a significant portion of it, direct payments to eligible recipients. And so when I'm talking about pure reparations, I'm talking about a program that has at least as a major component, uh, you know, my partner Kirsten Mullen says it should be 70% at least. Okay. Um, A major use of the fund should be direct payments to eligible recipients. And so, uh, I think that's what Clyburn objects to, but I like his language. Let's right. call it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wow. Well, Dr. Doherty, um, can you talk to us um, about your opinion of the recent state level? Um, I thought I thought I heard you coin a tone um, a term before called piecemeal, and the university level efforts to deal with the questions of reparations. Yeah, I I am a bit nervous about these efforts uh, for for two reasons. First, uh, I'm not certain that they really are reparations for the most part at the municipal and state level. Uh, There's a difference between improving conditions of equity and providing reparations. Uh, and most of the, 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 the projects that I've heard about at the state or municipal level are attempts to correct practices that should have been corrected a long time ago, but they don't necessarily involve any form of compensation for the folks who have been victimized by those past practices. And so uh, from my standpoint, people should refer to them as equity enhancing measures. They're fully desirable, but they are not reparations. 
And, uh, and one of the associated dangers with calling it reparations is that when you get to the stage where you're really trying to push for what constitutes a restitutive program, uh, you're going to have a situation where many, many people are going to say, well, you've already gotten your reparations because they've been administered at the local or municipal mm -hmm. level. Um, and, and I think that uh, with respect to colleges and universities, you have a situation in which the practices that they engaged in that helped them develop and become major institutions, the practices that were linked to slavery, uh, all occurred in a context in which slavery was legal. And it is the federal government that is the site at which the legality of slavery was established, as well as uh, you know, the permissiveness of a host of atrocities that took place at the national level across the entire country. And so, so it strikes me that you know, my, my second, kind, second kind of consideration here is that I think what people are doing is they're pursuing low-hanging fruit and uh, in, 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 in the process potentially missing the, the, the real target. Uh, and I, you know, we've waited 154 years for reparations. I'm willing to wait longer. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I'm willing to wait longer to get it right. And accepting piecemeal programs or projects is not going to be getting it right. So what I think that localities, municipalities, state governments, and uh, colleges and universities should do is form a lobbying coalition to aggressively pursue a comprehensive program of reparations for uh, black American descendants of US slavery at the national level. Um, and and uh, you know there, there's a host of things that must be done and should be done at the municipal and state level, but I don't think that they constitute reparations. And so we need to make sure that we separate the language from the policies that might be, be uh, pursued at the state and local level. And what was that term you use against? Equity? Equity enhancing. Equity enhancement Equity enhancing measures. policies, yeah. Policies, okay. Yeah. Thank Love you. It. Um, perfect segue, actually. Uh, the next question is about federal uh, reparations legislation. And, you know, the, want to get a little bit of the inside baseball here, you know. Um, you know, what can you tell us about the status of current federal reparations le legislation, particularly H.R. Uh, 40? There was a hearing in Congress, you know, this uh, past June. Um, we started this year with some 20 co-sponsors, 22 co-sponsors on the, um, on the legislation. Uh, Early, early this year, I, myself, and you know, many others around the country were involved in a, a very uh, grassroots, very strong uh, push and advocacy effort to to have more co-sponsors jump on the legislation. Right now, there are over 120 um, co-sponsors on the legislation. That's a historic record. I think it's three or four times more than the previous his, his, historical high. So there's, there's real momentum. Um, you know, it, it would seem we've, we've had the likes of Speaker Pelosi um, come out and say that she expected to see something move um, on um, HR 40. We've had even Clyburn add his name as a co-sponsor. Um, I think yeah. we've had Steny Hoyer, you know, also, um, you know, speak about um, uh, his expectation that something would move on this um, le legislation in the near term. 
uh, we've seen, you know, so that's the leadership of the house. And then we've seen, uh, you know, the addition of new co-sponsors. We've, we've also seen uh, the introduction of S-1083, uh, which is the first in history Senate companion bill to H.R. 40. It's basically a carbon copy of it, but, you know, yes, it's the it first is. in history, um, you know, int introduced by, yeah. right, yeah. by um, Senator Cory, Book Cory Booker. So, you know, that's all to say, right, you know, th there was also a hearing in June. Um, you submitted written, written testimony. You've offered what I can count as maybe nine or 10-ish revisions um, to HR 40, if you sort of break out your, your testimony. So one, you know, are those revisions being considered and incorporated into the legislation? Um, what is the status um, of those changes and those revisions right now? So I'm not aware that the revisions are being considered in a serious way at the present moment. Um, I'm not even sure where HR 40 stands in the priority list for the current House, uh, in part because everything has been completely overwhelmed by the impeachment hearings, obviously, and right. the impeachment decision. And, uh, and that's still a process that's got more uh, more unwinding to do. So, so uh, I, 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 I'm not sure where things stand with HR 40. I'm not sure if it's something that's going to spring to light immediately in the new year or whether it's going to be held on the back table. Uh, but I will say this, that there seems to be more attention being drawn to HR 40 than has ever been drawn to the bill. Uh, it's actually entered into the conversation or discussions that the current presidential candidates have pursued because I think most of them view that as the safest way of addressing the reparations question. Uh, you know, saying that I'm in favor of a commission to study it, uh, but, but you don't have to necessarily say that you're in favor of reparations itself. And so, um, and, and if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, Representative Clyburn, uh, you can be against pure reparations, but you can say you endorse a, a study commission. Uh, the thing is, of course, the study commission is important. It's not irrelevant, uh, and it's not entirely a deflection from a reparations program. Um, what I've, what I consistently want to emphasize is that if we think about the other major modern case of reparations in the United States that was uh, enacted by the Congress, uh, the uh, 1988 uh, American Civil Liberties Act, which provided uh, uh, reparations for Japanese Americans who had been unjustly incarcerated during uh, World War II, uh, the, uh, the prelude to that reparations program was a commission uh, it was called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and the Internment of Civilians, and it was uh, it had it had two major uh, major uh, objectives that it pursued and fulfilled. Uh, the first was to create a historical account of what the record was of this particular atrocity, uh, and it was critical that the commission was able to establish that. American officials knew full well that Japanese Americans were not a security threat to the nation, but still proceeded to uh, incarcerate them during uh, mm -hmm. during the, the final two years of, of World War II. Um, so that was the first thing, the historical account. And that's something that I would anticipate that 
uh, a commission that was activated by HR 40 would do. And then the second thing was actually to present uh, a plan of restitution for Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated unjustly. And so uh, that too is what I would think would be the second responsibility of, uh, of a study commission for black reparations, which is to, uh, to outline uh, a, a potential program that could be uh, translated directly into legislation. And I think that both of those steps need to be taken. And uh, so that's why I think there's value to having uh, a study commission. But I've also argued in my testimony that it's important for there to be a deadline on the deliberations and on the provision of a report from the, from the study commission so that this is not not an avenue for uh, uh, diverting attention mm -hmm. from the the big project, which is the actual uh, development and enactment of a reparations plan. Um, and so I've suggested that the commission should have its report out in 18 months. Uh, but regardless, you know, the effectiveness of the commission will be contingent upon who is on it. <laughs> and so, you know, we obviously need to be very attentive and we need to monitor if, if HR 40 legislation is enacted, we need to monitor very carefully who are uh, the individuals who are appointed as commissioners because that, that will be the crux of the matter. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I, you know, I a couple of follow-up points here. Um, <clears throat> just on the question of who gets on the commission? Uh, I actually thought one of your suggested revisions to the current um, version of HR 40 was really, really good. And that is to move all of the appointments to Congress. Um, uh, that way, um, and I think that sort of fits the model of, you know, that of you know, other similar programs. Um, but I thought that was a very healthy revision to propose and then um, just to follow up on the Japanese piece, the Japanese rep reparations piece, actually where I'm sitting right now, I'm in Sa Sacramento, California. Um, there's a building not too far from me right now, maybe about five minute drive called the Robert Matsui building. Um, and uh, Robert Matsui um, was very much instrumental in uh, getting the you know, both the reparations commission for the Japanese and the actual you know, restitution legislation um, uh, uh, passed in the 80s, uh, and his 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 um, his wife actually right now is our current um, Congress Congressperson Doris Matsui, and, and we've been um, advocating for her to get behind um, this this effort as as well. So, so thank you thank you for that. Um, that is all. <laughs> that's all. Okay. That's, that's it. Oh, um, good. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's totally it. Um, and, 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 unless you have any final words, anything you want the audience to know in particular that we may have not covered or covered well enough, you know, any parting shots, parting messages. Or any next yeah. step actions for us? Uh, I guess vigilance. Because <laughs> <Absolutely>. uh, <laughs> there's, so there's so many detours that are being placed in our way, including these piecemeal reparations efforts, but there are other detours. This notion that reparations is, is applicable to other communities, which of course it might be, but they're not presenting a formal case for it, right. and we are right now. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and 
I'm somewhat tired of the black American case always being shunted to the back, uh, literally to the back of the bus. So, you know, I think vigilance and determination are critical, but also patience because uh, this is not gonna happen instantly. Uh, it. It, you know, we gotta be in, in it for the, uh, for the, uh, the long haul. And we have to have the long view about, about this, but uh, yeah, um, it's it's a more propitious moment than any other that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And I would argue that maybe uh, more attention is being drawn to the question of reparations for uh, black descendants of American slavery than has been drawn to this issue since the Reconstruction era. And so, uh, you know, we need to seize the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this Thank is the moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you uh, so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I knew it would be, right? But like, you know, uh, so thank you. And I can't stop smiling. Thank you. But, you know, <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm y'all, y'all are generous. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's such an honor, Dr. Dan. It is, it's such man. An honor. It is, man. It, it really right. is. Um, so, all right. Black Civics is an educational program dedicated to supporting the ADOS community through podcasts, videos, and courses that will elevate our civic awareness. Together, we discuss politics and government, public policy, political activism, and much more, all in a way that's easy to understand and helps you learn. Black Civics is brought to you by Kimberly Renee Davis, Tony Blunt, and Chris Lodgson.